Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire. Joining us, as he does every week, is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Always a joy to be with you. Good to see you again. Now, as a former Chicagoan, born, raised, lived there for most of your life, I know you must have been thrilled to learn about this 10-part documentary series that ESPN has been airing titled The Last Dance. I guess when this episode of our podcast airs, the documentary will be fully out, but you and I have both seen just the first eight episodes. Um, I think you said you might be doing something on it later on, maybe an article or something, but give us your preliminary thoughts. Lots of people have been asking, what did Bishop Barron think about The Last oh, Dance? So tell us. <laughs> oh, I loved it. I love it. I mean, I, I lived through those years. Um, the Bulls first started winning. Well, I, I was still in Paris in the early, like, 1990s, but then I came back in 92. So I was there for both of the three-peats, you know. Were you there? Wasn't there a period they talk about it in the first or second episode when the Bulls went to Paris? Wasn't there something yeah. like an exhibition game or something? That was after I had, I had been there, though. Okay. Uh, that was during the second three-peat, I think, period, right? Uh, so yeah, I was gone from Paris by then. But oh my gosh, when I was in Paris, they, they loved American basketball. When I was there, it was magic. Magic Johnson was really popular in Paris, as well as Michael. But I love that show. It's so well done. And then it bring back the memories. I, I agonized through all those seasons and all those playoffs. I remember watching those games and dying, you know. But we all had this weird sense in Chicago that Michael wouldn't let us down. Um, I, I've been fascinated by a number of things, but one is the, you know, the whole baseball interlude, which I remember very well. We were devastated, all of us, when Michael retired, when his dad was killed, and that whole weird period of his life, you know. But I remember that, because I'm a Cub fan, I'm not a White Sox fan, but um, watching Michael hit and play, and we, we were just trying to figure it out, get our minds around it, the greatest basketball player ever, and is now like a, you know, okay major league uh, or minor league, you know, player. It was just surreal, you know. And then when he came back in the second three-peat, oh gosh, and Rodman. I remember there was a, a building right along the expressway in Chicago, the Kennedy Expressway, right near downtown. And they always had a, um, like a painting on the side of the building. Well, they put Rodman up one time with his orange hair or something. It caused, I'm not joking, for weeks, major traffic jam because Everybody wanted to look at the picture of Rodman. So anyway, I, I love it. It brings back lots of good Chicago memories. Well, let it be written for the record that during this run of the 90 Bulls, the only team to beat them in the playoffs was the Orlando Magic after Jordan returned the first time. <laughs> so that needs to be in the historical record. Is that when, when Shaq was with them, right? Shaq, Penny, Nick yeah, Anderson. We had a great right. squad. And uh, yeah. Jordan was just coming back, getting back into full strength. And he said in the That's documentary, right, yeah. I was only 80%, 90%. But then the next year he That's came right. back and won the when championship. When he just came back from the baseball interlude, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, they were great moments. And there was no one like Michael. You watch him move. It's like um, uh, Michael Jackson or Fred Astaire or someone. No one moved the way Michael did. And no one elevated the way he did. And no one was capable of the moves he had to this day. Do you know anybody? Like, you know, Steph Curry is wonderful to watch. And the quickest hands I've ever seen, I think, shooting a basketball. But he's, he's I mean, God bless him. Nothing against him. But no one's like Michael. No one moves the way Michael Jordan did. So if you're just into the aesthetics of basketball, it's a joy to watch him play again. All right, well, we'll have to do a whole nother episode on basketball yeah, or you know, the, the objective aesthetics excellence of Michael Jordan. 
Um, but there's one more thing I wanted to mention before we get into today's topic, and that's that in one week, on June 15th, we are finally releasing the long-awaited Word on Fire Bible. And next week, we're going to release a whole podcast discussion about the Bible, so we'll go into it in more depth. But hopefully you've seen, if you've been following Bishop Barron, little teaser photos, little teaser videos. Um, we've released a couple of video trailers now of the Bible. You can find all of it at the website wordonfire.org Bible. And then on June 15th, that's the link where you'll also be able to order the Bible, wordonfire.org Bible. So again, I want to save more discussion on it for next week's episode, but check out the website, get ready, because it's coming soon. Okay, Bishop, today we are going to be discussing something that people have been writing in for months asking me about, and it's always caused me to scratch my head. They say, Bishop Barron speaks often about the need to know the great story of Israel or the theodrama or, you know, the big narrative of the Bible. We say it many ways and they say, where can I find Bishop Barron outlining this or describing it? And, you know, I look through our articles, our videos, our podcast episodes and realize we've never done a single resource laying out the, the great drama of God, of salvation history. So that's what we're going to be discussing here. Before we get into the particulars of this drama, though, I think we should focus on the, the meta question of why it's important at all to understand this great story. Why do we need to, to know what this story is about, and why is it important to find our own role within it? Yeah, in some ways you've answered the question there, Brandon, is Christianity is not just a set of moral prescriptions or you know, metaphysical insights. And I'm not uh, for a minute denigrating either of those two things. They're very important. And a lot of religions have that sort of focus. They're, they're wisdom traditions. You know, so uh, distilling from a lot of human experience these insights about the nature of reality, about the nature of human behavior. And again, that's terrific. Think of Taoism and so on, Confucianism. But see, Christianity isn't like that. I mean, you can distill some similar things from it, but that's not the heart of it at all. Christianity is a great uh, narrative. It's a great story. It's a drama. Jesus is not a, um, you know, isolatable spiritual teacher who, alongside of other spiritual teachers, tells us true things about the world and about our behavior. I mean, yeah, again, you can distill that from his teaching. But what makes Jesus really interesting is that he's the climax of a great story. He's the fulfillment the completion of a great narrative. He's like the uh, last act in a Shakespearean play. You're not going to get him unless you know what's come before. If you just, let's say you, you take uh, Macbeth out of the last act and you have Macbeth on the stage giving a couple of speeches and you say, hmm, okay, I guess he's saying some things that are interesting or maybe there's some timeless truths in what he's saying. Although by the last act, Macbeth is pretty much out of his mind. But my point is, you won't understand Macbeth and what he's saying and doing unless you've, you watch the whole play. It's the play that's the thing. There's Hamlet. The play is the thing. The play tells you uh, what it's about. So you can't isolate Jesus and say, well, there he is, a, a teacher of timeless truths. No, he's the climax of a great drama. If you don't know the drama, you won't know him. And then the reason I said you anticipated the answer, Brandon, is that in your question you said, how do we fit into the drama? Because actually Jesus is not the last act. He's the, he's the uh, penultimate act. We're the last act. And that makes all the difference. We won't know what our role is in the theodrama unless we know what, what came before. 
I like that term, theodrama. We've talked about before Hans Urs von Balthasar's comparing yeah. of the theodrama, the story God has been telling since the beginning of time, versus the ego drama, you know, our little petty adventures and dramas day to day. And it strikes me that this isn't just a comparison between knowledge of knowing two different stories, but our human fulfillment is depending on putting ourselves in the right story, that we won't fully flourish as human beings unless we're acting in the right story, the theodrama right. versus our ego drama. Right, and I think I've used before, maybe just in popular talks and stuff, uh, an image from N.T. Wright, who said, most of us are like this. We're like people who are uh, dressed up for Romeo and Juliet. We've learned the lines of Romeo and Juliet. We know the thematics and, and the dramatic movement of Romeo and Juliet. The problem is we're in Hamlet. <laughs> I mean, you're, <laughs> you're dressed up and you've rehearsed and you know the lines for the wrong play. See, because that's getting to a deep point. There's always a play going on. There's someone's narrative being told. As Americans, we're part of a narrative, aren't we? We rehearse it all the time. Fourth of July is a, is a key moment when we tell the American story again. And nothing wrong with it. I love the American story, and I'm part of it. I know how I should behave as an American to a large degree because I've, I know the story. I was told that story as a little kid, beginning with you know, the pilgrims and coming up with the colonists and George Washington and the, and the American Revolution and, and Abraham Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address and you know, the Constitution, et cetera, et cetera. I know where I fit in this great national story. Therefore, I know how to behave and what to do. Well, in a very similar way, the far greater story of God's salvation of the world, I have to fit into that drama too. Otherwise, I won't know who I am or I'll be dressed up by somebody else, trust me, to be in their drama. I'll learn their lines. Right? So, for example, there's a story of secular modernity. That's its own dramatic tale. We hear it all the time, don't we? Uh, watch most movies and TV shows. There's usually some retelling of the great story of secular modernity, which is what? We know the story of liberation from old, repressive, uh, usually religious or moral uh, strictures, right? How, watch it now. Once you have that in mind, you'll see it everywhere. How so many stories have that structure. Well, what is that? That's the telling of the modern secular narrative. And we're being dressed up for it. We're learning the lines of it. We, we know the, the first, second, third, and fourth acts of it. And so now we know how to behave in that drama. But do we know the acts of the theodrama and therefore how to behave in that one? Because that's the meta-narrative that counts. All right, well, there's many ways to skin the cat here, many ways to split up this theodrama, this story of salvation history, whatever you want to call it. But what we're going to use here in this episode is the five-part uh, splitting used by N.T. Wright, the great biblical scholar, in his book, New Testament and the People of God. He spends a lot of time in that book outlining this drama, especially as it relates to Jesus and how Jesus uh, brings the early acts to fulfillment. Mm -hmm. So here are the five acts, and then we'll, watch, we'll walk through them one at a time. Act one, creation. Act two, the fall. Act three, the formation of Israel. Act four, the penultimate act, Jesus Christ. And then act five, the church. So we'll spend a few minutes on each one of these. So Bishop, the first two are found in Genesis, the beginning of the Old Testament. Uh, let's start with number one, act one, creation. Why do we need to start there? Very important to start with creation and not with the fall. 
Now, we'll get to the fall because one of the troubles with um, the secular modern uh, meta narrative is it tends to overlook the fall. So don't think I'm doing that. But that we begin with creation. Original blessing comes before original sin. That God makes a world for his glory, that he places us within it in a kingly and priestly role. So think now of those opening moves in the book of Genesis. Our job is to be priests of creation, that we lead all of creation in a great chorus of praise. That's why we come at the end of the liturgical procession, which happens at the beginning of the book of Genesis. All of creation coming forth from God like a liturgical procession, at the end of which are found human beings who are meant to lead creation in a chorus of praise. Secondly, think of Adam now in the garden. is meant to cultivate the garden, but then go on march, expanding its boundaries outward. Adam is meant to defend God's good order, but also to bring it to bear now in the whole world. That's the kingly task. That's how we're made in the image and likeness of God, to serve the purposes of his good and beautiful creation. That's that's the opening move. When the spiritual life begins with sin, trouble follows, distortion follows. And you see it now in all kinds of forms. We can do a whole show on that. That when you commence the project with sin, the the, uh, understanding of Christianity gets skewed. Begin with creation. Begin with the beauty and goodness and glory and of the human role within that creation. You see that strain in a lot of forms of Protestantism that emphasize total depravity, that humans yeah. are just totally corrupt, and even if they'll acknowledge that humans were created good in the Garden of Eden, that all the emphasis is nevertheless placed on Act 2. It's almost like the whole story just starts with Act 2, and the fundamental truth is that we're all evil, we're all sinful. But as you say, you got to start with Act 1 on creation. But think then, of a kid. Let's move. Yeah, to your point there, Brandon, think of a kid... All he ever hears is how bad he is from his parents. All he ever hears is mistakes he makes, how stupid he is, how limited he is, why'd you do this? He's just taking on blame and culpability. Well, his life is going to get onto a weird path. The good parent, of course, always begins with how beautiful you are, how good you are, and how, how, uh, what a gift you are, you know? Now, we'll get to act two, as you should with every kid, because every kid has fallen, you know? Uh, but anyway, so that's our setup for act two. Well, let's move there to act two. You know, most screenwriters will acknowledge that you can't have a good story without an inciting incident, something that goes awry, that throws the whole story off kilter. And that's, for us, what happens in the fall, again, the early chapters of Genesis. So first, describe the fall. What do we mean by that? And why is it important we include this in the narrative? Well, go back to, see, read the fall from the standpoint of creation. Uh, What's our task within creation? To be a good king, be a good priest. What's the fall? Bad priesthood. So instead of worshiping God and, and leading all of creation in a chorus of right praise, we tend to worship creatures. So Augustine said that very simply. We turn from the creator to creatures. That means I think wealth and pleasure and the goods of the world are the highest values. When I start worshiping in that false way, I fall apart on the inside and I tend to produce chaos around me. So on the biblical reading, and I think that's right through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is bad praise is always the fundamental problem, which is why the first commandment, right? To honor the Lord your God alone 
You know, God above all things. So bad praise and then bad kingship. Look at Adam who, who fails to protect the garden and to protect his wife from the incursions of the, of the serpent. Well, that's symbolic talk for a failure in kingly leadership. So he didn't defend God's good creation, and therefore he wasn't able to go on the march. In fact, he becomes victimized. He becomes beholden to this, uh, this dark power. So that's one way to read it. You know, you could say pride and so on, and yes, all that's true. You could say fear is at the heart of it, and there's something to that. But I would say maybe bad priesthood, bad kingship is the, at the heart of what we call the fall or this, this compromising of who we are. Now, I mentioned how we can underplay creation and, and that causes trouble. Certainly in our culture today, there's a great danger in underplaying the fall, right? I'm okay, you're okay, don't tell me what's wrong with me, don't get down on me, don't lay your value trips on me, right? All ways of saying, I'm, I'm free of blame. It's the, I've called it the exculpating society, right? I'm always, I'm always relieving myself of guilt. Well, see, that's going to lead to all kinds of problems, too. You're going to get this, this drama all messed up if you don't acknowledge the legitimacy of that second act, the fall. We've talked in previous episodes about how if you tell a different story, and I'm thinking here of the whole modern project and enlightenment that emphasizes the perfectibility of humans yeah. and human nature, uh, that you end up with something like what we saw in the 20th century. It, it crashes and burns abysmally. And it seems to me that whole program is rooted in ignoring this second act, yeah. the fall. That we Christians, we're not surprised when humans fail to measure up or when they make right. mistakes or when they sin in egregious ways. We expect that. I think of the Chesterton line where he says, the fall, the second act, is the only empirically yeah. verifiable part of Christianity. Just open the newspaper <laughs> and you see it on display. Right. And you made a good point, Brandon, that uh, it's not just, oh yeah, a few things went, went wrong. It's something much more like, and here our language today is helpful, much more like an addiction. Meaning we've fallen into a situation that we can't extricate ourselves from. So anyone that's ever wrestled with an addiction to anything, whether it's, it's alcohol or pornography or drugs or whatever it is, or even you know uh, video games, when you get addicted to something, Aditure means to take your voice away. It means that you're no longer in command. You're in the grip of something that you can't get out of. You have to, what do the 12-step programs say, surrender to a higher power. You have to acknowledge your own uh, uh, incapacity. Now, that's what's really right, it seems to me, in, in the systems that emphasize, now, I'm not going to go all the way to total depravity. What they're driving at, it seems to me, correctly is this sense of, of addiction, that I'm in the grip of something that I can't solve on my own. Uh, I need grace. And now, welcome to the rest of the story, right? But it's, it's getting these little moves right in the beginning are hugely important, because you're dead right. If you say, oh yeah, I got problems, everyone knows that. The world is not what it should be, but enough political reform, we can solve it. Enough economic reform, no problem. Uh, just get ourselves psychologically straightened out, we'll be fine. Well, I can, I can point to figures, you know, whether it's, it's, uh, it's Kant or it's Sigmund Freud or people that have said some version of those things, you know, Marx, enough economic reform. But Christians just shake their head at that. Now read someone like Karl Barth in the early 20th century who saw this myth of progress that came up out of the 18th and 19th centuries. 
and produced, as you said correctly, the disaster of the First World War. Because if you try to extricate yourself from an addiction, you tend to get deeper into the addiction, right? So welcome now to the third act of the theodrama. All right, so the first act is creation. We were made good in the image and likeness of God. The second act is the fall. Something went horribly wrong. The third act, though, is the one I think most people, even many Christians, tend to miss, and it's the formation of Israel. A lot of us like to jump right from the fall, which was the original sin, all the way to the Savior, Christ, and we miss a lot of the actions and the drama in between. Tell us about this center act, act three, the formation of Israel, why it's important and what we need to know. It's so important, Brandon. And you go right back to the second century when people like, um, like Irenaeus are fighting against Marcionism. That's a, a view of Christianity proposed by a, a theologian called Marcion, who argued that, well, this Jewish thing is, is kind of a, it's an account of a fallen God. It's, uh, it's not that important, and we should get rid of that. And Jesus is the Savior. We should really cut to the chase. And even a lot of the New Testament that is redolent of the Old Testament, we should get rid of that too. Well, the church, and Irenaeus is a key figure there, said no to Marcionism. Now, why? Because it doesn't recognize the integrity of God's plan that culminated, yes, indeed, in Jesus, but which was prepared for by this long history of a holy people, Israel. Now, go back to the very beginning. Everything we talked about so far, the creation and fall, has to do with humanity in its totality, if you want, right? It's all human beings are involved. God launches, in response to this problem, a rescue operation. And the rescue operation takes the form of a people. He's going to form a people after his own mind and his own heart. Now, it begins with this figure, Abram, who's a man from Ur of the Chaldees. So he's not, a, he's not from the you know, promised land. Who hears a call. He hears a voice. Mind you, beyond his own. It's extremely important. What's the, what's the, the nature of sin? It, what's, I'm always telling myself what to do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the addict who can't get out of his addiction because he's, he's always telling himself. It's only when you surrender to a higher power that begins to direct your life from the outside. Well, now look at the story of Abraham. It's exactly that. He listens to a voice superior to his own, which tells him, get up. You're an old man, I know. You're settled in your ways, I know. You got your, your family and your livelihood and everything. But get up, leave all of it, and trust in me. Well, that's the beginning of the holy people Israel. It's a people, mind you, typically on the move, uh, unsettled, uh, unsure, but always being summoned by this voice of God. Now, I'm going to just say this very briefly. This is the whole Old Testament we're talking about here. But God shapes this people, how? By covenant. That God makes these great agreements I will be your God, you'll be my people. Ingredient in the covenant, something like obedience to God's will, learning to walk in the ways of the Lord. What else? Learning how to worship God properly. Not because God needs it. God needs nothing. But it's in the very act of worshiping that we undo the work of sin, which is turning from the creator to creatures, right? So in the act of worship, I turn back to God. So God 
trains the holy people in how to worship him, trains the holy people how to walk the way he wants them to walk, provides for them prophets who teach them, provides a temple in which they worship. In all these institutions and through all these means, God, the higher power, is shaping a holy people. Okay, have we come a long way? Yeah, yeah, thank God for the holy people Israel, our elder brothers in the faith, as John Paul II called Israel. But within Israel, and this is right through the Old Testament, there's always that nagging sense that despite all of these gifts of the Lord, despite all of these institutions and structures, we, we still haven't fulfilled our mission, which is to what? Through the beauty of our life and our praise, to draw all the world. Remember the, the, the two tasks of, of, of Adam, to be a priest and to be a king. Well, that was Israel's task, to lead the whole world in right praise, that, that all the nations would come to Jerusalem to worship, and kingly to draw all the nations into unity around the worship of of the true God. That was Israel's mission. I don't know how you could possibly avoid the conclusion, as you read the Old Testament, that though that mission was clear, though they had institutions designed to foment it, it hadn't happened. And so from within Israel comes a cry of longing, now, you see it in the prophets, don't you? You see it in the Psalms. Anyone that, re- that, that prays the Psalms with the church every day, you hear it all the time, the longing for the Mashiach, the anointed one who would come and deliver his people, the anointed one who would finally be holy Israel meeting the Lord God. Now we're on the verge of Act 4. Some weeks back, Bishop, we did an episode on the historical quest for, or the quest for the historical Jesus. And we explained how for a couple centuries there, people were trying to read Jesus against the background of the ancient mythologies or modern ethical systems. And it was only kind of in recent times that we've returned to reading Jesus against his Jewish background, against this act three drama of Israel. Why is it so important for Christians to understand act three and not just skip right over it? Because you won't get him at all, and you'll present him in a very truncated and distorted form. We've cited N.T. Wright already, but a line of his that has stayed in my mind ever since I read it. He said, most of the Christology of the last 200 years in both the Protestant and Catholic uh, realms has been largely Marcionite in form. And you see what he means, Marcion, denying the legitimacy of the Old Testament. The presentation of Jesus in almost total abstraction from the Old Testament. Think here now of Friedrich Schleiermacher, the founder of modern liberal Protestantism. Read his Christology. There's barely a mention of the Old Testament. But to be fair, a lot of his disciples in the 20th century, both Catholic and Protestant, often present Jesus in almost complete abstraction from the Old Testament. You are not going to get him correctly that way. You just can't. You won't understand why the first Christians thought he was so important. The first clue is they didn't think he was important because he was a teacher of timeless spiritual truths. They thought he was important because he was the fulfillment of Israel. And one of the clues there, Brandon, is over and over again in the New Testament, according to the writings, according to the writings, 
katatagrapha in, in Greek. You hear it over and over again in Paul and in the Gospels. It happened according to the scriptures. See, they, they were trying to understand him against that Old Testament background. Act 4 making sense only subsequent to Act 3. Okay, so for centuries, the Jewish people were kind of stuck in this third act, the formation of Israel. It didn't seem to be working. It didn't seem to be accomplishing the intention. But then 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ is incarnated and thus begins Act 4. What happens here in this story? Why is this moment so significant? You know, let me begin with more abstract doctrinal language, but I, I, wanna, I want people to see how it, in fact, is very much in line with this theodramatic hermeneutic. Here's what I mean. Who's Jesus? We say he's the coming together of two natures, divine and human, without mixing, mingling, or confusion. I'm using doctrinal language here. But see, what does that mean? That in Jesus' person, there come together divinity and humanity. Neither one absorbed into the other, but the two of them come together, watch now, in a kind of covenantal unity. What was the purpose of the covenant? It was to bring Israel and divinity together. What was the purpose of prophecy? It was to bring people back to Torah so that they could find again union with God. What was the purpose of the temple? It was to be the place where Israel, and therefore all of humanity, would meet divinity. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the institutions and expectations of Israel. What began with Abraham, what comes up through Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, uh, Samuel, David, Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, what comes up through all these people is the formation of Israel tending in the direction of union with the Lord, but never, as we say, quite making it. Who's Jesus? Faithful Yahweh, faithful God of Israel, meets faithful Israel. And therefore, all the institutions of Israel have found their fulfillment. I love how Paul puts it. Um, I've used this in, in dialogue, actually, with um, uh, Jewish colleagues, is like, how do we understand Jesus? Jesus, Paul says, is the yes to all the promises that God made to Israel. Now that's coming from a real Israelite. That's coming from Shaul of Tarsus, right? Someone that knew everything I've been talking about and much, much more. And that's how he saw Jesus. He's the yes, God's yes, to all the promises made to Israel. He's the fulfillment of the story which was left unfulfilled in Act 3. Similarly, Act 4 doesn't just stop with Jesus and the story ends. You know, I, when you read the New Testament, it's not like the Gospel of John wraps up and that's it. Mm -hmm. There's more to the story, and that brings us to Act 5, which is the church, which is the act that we find ourselves in right now. Um, Bishop, I guess it's important to understand what's supposed to be happening during this act, and then how does it resolve? Do we know how this story is going to be coming to its conclusion? Well, we do. I mean, we know it's a comedy, not a tragedy. We know it's a comedy because of, of Jesus. It has a happy ending. Uh, what's the dynamic of Act 5? Now read the Acts of the Apostles to find out. And you're right, the, the New Testament doesn't end with the Gospel of John, but the Acts of the Apostles. Now we see the church, the mystical body of Jesus, 
doing what Jesus did. So now, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, carrying the dynamics of Jesus, the fulfillment of Israel, out to all the world. Notice, please go right back to Adam. The kingly and the priestly function. What's the church doing? The church is teaching the world how to praise God aright, and it's carrying out into the world the dynamics of Jesus' uh, life. So the healing and teaching and um, uh, uh, care for the poor and the, the realization of the Jesus' vision of life, all of that is now the work of the church. Now go back to the earlier image. Uh, so now we're not just like reading a play. No, no, we're in a play. That's the important thing. We're in a play. But now we know what play we're in. Now, I'm in the American play. I am, and I have no trouble with that. I, I understand my role in that. Um, but, heck, that's nothing compared to this play. This is the play that really matters. And if I'm going to act correctly in it, if, I, if I'm going to know like what to wear, what to say, how to act, I need to know what came in Acts 1, 2, 3, and 4. Right? It's like, oh, now, now having really understood Macbeth, having really read it, I know how to act these scenes in Act 5. Otherwise, I'm going to be a, a wreck. If all I've ever done is acted in Romeo and Juliet or in, in plays by Bertolt Brecht or something, I won't know what to do in Act 5 of Macbeth. But having read it, having studied it, having watched other great players, right? think of the saints, I'm going to know what to do in Act 5. So that's why it's so important. We don't read the Christian thing like it's just this book out there. No, it's more like I'm an actor. I'm reaching for a text there. I'm an actor, and I'm, I'm learning my lines, but I'm on the stage. And, and what I can't wait to do is put the text down so I can really get into the play. You know, uh, That's where we are, and that's why we need to know the dynamics of that theodrama. A couple years ago, a Protestant apologist I like, Gregory Kokel, he wrote a book. I don't wholly agree with the book, but it's a Protestant telling of the whole drama of salvation. But it was titled, The Story of Reality. And I like that matter-of-fact title because it insinuates that this isn't just one story among many that you yeah. can choose from. I want to act in that play. That religion's got its own worldview and its own drama. It's like, this is the way thing, things are. This is the logic of the universe. We're all a part of this story of reality that God has been weaving since the beginning. The only question is, do you acknowledge that you're in the play and are you playing the right part? But we don't have a choice of whether to be in this play or right. another one. Um, this don't is you, the story of reality. Yeah, quite right. And I, I always think of Stanley Hauerwas's line where he said, um, the essence of liberalism, which is the dominant philosophy today, is that the only story I have is the story I make up for myself. That's, that's his definition, pretty good, actually, of modernity or liberalism. So I'm in a story, okay, but it, I, I make it up. I get to make it up. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me how to act. I make up my own story. See, I mean, how boring. That's, that's your Baltazar ego drama, you know? Yeah, I can make up my own stupid story, I suppose, but what a dull, what a dull play. And then, by the way, all of us, all making up our own stories, well, it's going to be a cacophony. It's going to be a, 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 a battle royale, you know? Um, what's really fun is that I, I'm not making up the story. I, I'm in a story that's being told by God, and God's inviting me into its dynamics, you know? But the making up my own story, I, I just find that so tiresome and so uninteresting.
I'd much rather be in the great story that God is telling. 